0: You know, it's our ninth birthday. And I think the way God designed the world to work on this annual cycle on a birthday, it's a great time to kind of pause and reflect on your life and what's led you to this point. And I can't help but think about how our church has grown to this point. And my earliest days as the lead pastor of Generation Church nine years ago, I did see our church growing. But it wasn't that we wanted to build a large church. Um, Me and Amy, we wanted to build a good church that pleased God and that's what we've done. And when you have a good church that pleases God, God blesses that church and people want to be a part of it. And that is what we've seen. We've seen more people want to be a part of Generation Church and we've seen new campuses starting and today we're celebrating the grand opening of our new facility in Mesa. But I really believe that In this moment, as we celebrate what God has done, we have to also look towards the future and think about what God's gonna do in this next year. And after so much expansion and new, I really feel like in 2023, the Lord's leading our church to grow in strength and in depth in our relationship with Him. You know, we've always had a loving church, but not every church Uh, does a great job at discipling the Christians that they reach. And the problem is if you don't disciple Christians, you aren't able to raise up leaders that you need to reach more new Christians. And so in this season growing stronger and us growing deeper in our relationship with God, really what that does is it, it raises up the next generation of leaders in the kingdom of God who can be a part of reaching lost people and bringing them into the fold and then helping them grow in their relationship with God. And and growing stronger and and deeper like that, it's going to set us up, not just to be personally more mature in faith and stronger, but that's going to set us up to be ready to then continue to expand and stretch out and reach more people. Because it's not just about us, there's still a lot of people in the valley who need Jesus. And one thing that we believe is In the course of time, when it's God's plan, we're gonna start new campuses and bring Generation Church to parts of the valley where they still need more good Bible teaching churches that glorify God. And we know that a lot of what we love about our church, there's a lot of other people out there who need that in their lives. So I think in this next season, the Lord wants us to grow in relationship with Him, grow in relationship with each other, and then we'll be ready for whatever He has next for us. And now today as we're celebrating where God's brought us and everything that He's done for us, it's so good. We have so much to be grateful for, but I really, truly feel like we're just getting started. He's just set us up in this next season to reach more people and to grow and experience new life in Jesus like never before. So it's true, we can say the best is yet to come. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome today. It's good to be together on our ninth birthday, the grand opening of our new facility in Mesa. And I want to welcome those of you who are joining us in Mesa as well as... South Mountain Campus of Fountain Hills and online. Uh, last summer, we started a series in Exodus. So, if you'd like to catch up and go back through the archives, you can do that. But within that book of Exodus, there's a lot of little mini series that we've been focusing on. And we're starting a new one today focused on the Ten Commandments. Kind of a big deal. So, I'm pretty excited about it. The Ten Commandments where the law is when God gave the law to Moses, and he really crystallized and spelled out what he expects from his people, his standard of righteousness, and how to have a pleasing relationship with him. In Hebrew, what we translate as the Ten Commandments, it would literally be the Ten Words, uh, often called the Decalogue by theologians. And God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses on tablets of stone. And the Bible says it was actually written by the finger of God. It just didn't come from Moses. It wasn't Moses' idea. It came from God. It wasn't just an ethical code or a moral code to live by, but it also served as the criminal law for the nation of Israel, whose king was God. In fact, in Deuteronomy 33, it says, "...the Lord became king of Israel." And having the Lord as your king, that's what you want. That's a good thing. It's when the Israelites demanded to have a human king that they went astray. Now, we know as Christians today, Jesus is our king. And one day he's going to rule over all of heaven and earth as king. And that's going to be a really good thing, isn't it? But in the meantime, we can serve the Lord by understanding his law and the standards that he set in his law. I talked about that all last week if you'd like to understand the law more. Before I jump into the Ten Commandments, let me just give you a little background context. God made a covenant promise to Abraham, who's the father of the faith, that he would bless him and multiply his descendants and bless all the earth through his descendants. And then Abraham at a very old age, he had a son named Isaac. Uh, It was a gift from God. People don't usually have kids when they're 100 years old. Isaac was special. Isaac had a son named Jacob, who's sometimes called Israel. That's where we get that name originally. And Jacob had multiple sons. Joseph was his favorite son, and everyone in the family knew Joseph was the favorite. And that's not really good for family dynamics, when all the other kids know you've got one favorite. Because you parents, you have favorite kids, but you just pretend like you don't, you know? <laughs> Jacob didn't even pretend. He just was like, yeah, you're my favorite. Everybody knew it. So his brothers got jealous, they beat him, they threw him in a pit, and they sold him into slavery. But God raised him up into a position of power and influence in Egypt and used him to save people from a famine that swept across the land. then Joseph was restored to his brothers and to his family, the very family that betrayed him. And that's where we already see like a picture of Jesus forgiving us, even though we sinned against him. God raised him up and saved us through Jesus. And the Bible talks about how hundreds of years go by after Joseph. And there was a new king in Egypt. And this new Pharaoh didn't know about Joseph and how God used Joseph. And so the new king in Egypt started to resent the Israelites who were multiplying like rabbits, just like God promised Abraham. They were just multiplying and that scared Pharaoh that they were gonna become powerful. So Pharaoh enslaved them. He made them slaves and oppressed them. God, on the other hand, delivered them. He sent Moses to lead them out of Egypt. And you need to know all of that because before God's law was ever given, God had already given grace and shown love to his people who he rescued from Egypt. And he reminds them of that in Exodus 20 verse one right, when he's starting to give the Ten Commandments, here's what God says. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And this is a preface statement. And it's meant to be something that frames all 10 of the commandments for us. Remember, this is coming from the Lord in Hebrew, Yahweh. It's his personal name, your God, Yahweh, your Elohim. He's introducing himself by name and reminding them of his love, his grace, and his provision before he ever gave them the law which just shows you a lot about God. He wants to know you and have a personal relationship with you. And his law is meant to communicate his love and how to have a loving relationship back with him and with one another. In fact, the first five commandments shapes our relationship with God. And the last five commandments shapes our relationship with human beings. In Matthew 24, Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Here he's quoting Deuteronomy 6. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself, quoting Leviticus 19. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So you can see that the law of God, it gets a bad rap from a lot of Christians. Like, oh, the law was negative, the law was oppressive. The law was a burden. No, the law was always about love. How to have a loving relationship with God and other people. I want you to understand it like this. The Ten Commandments were not rules to obey just for the sake of obedience as though to earn some kind of credit. Rather, they were to be obeyed in order to discover abundant life which flows from a full and rich relationship with God. See, a lot of people, they see God and his commandments as restrictive and mean, like he's the fun Nazi in the sky trying to ruin all your party plans. But in order to understand his commandments, you have to understand that he's not just our king, he also identifies himself as your father. And isn't it true that a loving father protects his children? Yes. True or false? True. You know, Amy is a great mom. She nourishes our daughter, Lila, she nurtures her, she takes care of her, and I'm around too. Probably 50% of my job description as a dad at this point is just saving my daughter's life. Amen, dads? That's that's like half of what we're doing, it seems like. And just the last week, I made my daughter cry three times, at least, at least. The first time I can think of, it was uh, one night at dinner, Amy made soup, and she had like this sourdough bread, and on the counter there was like this giant crocodile Dundee sized bread knife. It was super sharp. My daughter, she climbed up on the counter at some point. She grabbed this knife and she's like waving it around, like, ah. And I'm on the other side of the kitchen, no! And I run over, I grab it out of her hands. And what does she do? <laughs> like starts crying, you know, just overflows from her. And you know, mom's like, what's wrong? Daddy took my knife away. <laughs> she wasn't thanking me for protecting her from danger. I'm just trying to keep her from cutting her arm off. (laughs) Another time this week, we woke up one day, we were like, no TV for her today. She's had enough TV. She needs like a TV-free day. You know, if you've got young kids, you know, you can kind of tell when they've just gotten too much TV. They become like little TV crackheads. (laughs) It's like, I want TV. I want more TV. You're like, okay, you've had enough. You need to take a break. Did she thank us for helping her? No. She was mad. And she let us know all about it. Another time I was picking her up from her grandma's house and I put her in her car seat and I strapped her down real tight. And she doesn't like that. So I'm not, you know, she's fussy like, no, I don't want to sit in my car seat. And I'm strapping her, her straps down, you know, according to the instructions. And she's like, it's too tight. It's too tight. I'm like, baby, it has to be tight for it to work. It's got to keep you safe. And, and so, you know, you look at that and all this stuff that I'm doing, you know, I'm just taking things away from her. I'm telling her no. I'm strapping her down. It would be easy to say, like, that's so oppressive. All those restrictions and rules you've put on her, you're keeping her from what she wants. But you realize, I mean, obviously, what I've done, it's not oppressive, I said no in order to be protective. I put restrictions in place to keep her from danger. It's the same with God. He is a loving father to us, his children. And he doesn't give us commandments to just be mean or oppressive or restrictive, but to be protective and to prevent us from encountering danger. So you could think of it this way. Like when God says don't, You can really think of it like he's saying, don't hurt yourself. Here's his commandments. So God's boundaries are meant to protect us. If we stay within his boundaries, we can enjoy incredible freedom, blessing, and the avoidance of much suffering. He says, don't, and he means don't hurt yourself. Stay here where I've placed you, and I'm trying to keep you safe and prevent you from having to learn the hard way. So here's the first commandment with all that being said in Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, it seems pretty straightforward, but this commandment is first for a reason because it sets the stage for the rest of them. God is number one, no other gods before me. Now, maybe as a newer Christian or less biblically versed, you could have some questions about this. Like, here are some questions you might have. I thought that we serve the one true God, and he's the only God, so how can there be other gods? Well, you need to know that really anything you worship can be a god. The Egyptians considered Pharaoh to be a god, and they worshiped hundreds of other gods. We as Christians, we know the God of the Bible who reveals himself as Yahweh. He exists three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is the one true God, but Anyone you look to for what only God is supposed to provide is potentially a God in your life. And the Bible makes it clear that those other gods are false gods. Psalm 81 says, you must never have a foreign god. You must not bow down before a false god. God had to tell them this because his people were repeatedly tempted to do it. They were always feeling the attraction of having these other gods. These false gods were actually demons or they came about through the influence of demonic forces. But these false gods, they would provide for the people who worshiped them Or at least they were thought to. And when it pertains to fertility, people would go and they would sacrifice to false gods. Or when they wanted to be blessed financially, they would worship certain false gods. Or when they wanted victory in warfare, they had a God for that. All different cultures. They've had God of health. And and you name it, God of the harvest, God of the ocean, God of the sky. They had all these different gods they thought would help them in one way or another. But our God is different. In Psalm 97, it says, For you, O Lord, Yahweh are most high over all the earth you are exalted far above all gods he sets himself apart it's true that to some extent demons do have power they might have the power to help a person with a problem or to bless a person in a certain way but their power is nothing compared to all powerful god almighty the one true god In Jeremiah 10, it says, no one is like you, Lord. You are great, and your name is mighty in power. Our God is all-powerful. Nothing is impossible for him. And so it's good that we get to know him and have relationship with him. Okay, so this first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Okay, we know there are other gods, but none are like our God. What does it mean, before me? Some translations say, beside me. Does that mean you can have other gods if they're after him? Well literally if you were to translate the Hebrew command into English as close to literally word for word as possible it would read like this Not shall you ha- shall there be for you gods before my face Not shall there be for you gods before my face and the fact that the first word is a negative it really emphasizes the strength of this command it's firm it's said with authority No gods for you. Get them out of my face. I don't want any of those other gods up in your life or in our business as a people. That's what it means. God explains our relationship with him using the analogy of a husband and a wife all throughout scripture. A husband and a wife, comparing himself to a husband, and his people to a bride of sorts. You know, As a pastor, part of my job is I'll, I'll marry, I'll bury, and I'll baptize. Not in that order. The, the marrying is a lot more fun than the burying. And so imagine a scenario with me. You know, imagine I'm doing a wedding and I got a a groom up here. It's his wedding day. He's been waiting for this day, especially because he's a good Christian boy. He's been waiting for this day. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) He's beaming with pride, and in comes his bride. Walks down the aisle, beautiful, amazing white dress. She's prettier than he's ever seen her before, and probably prettier than she'll ever be seen again. But (laughs) she she comes in. I'm kidding. But it's funny because it's true. And she comes in. She comes down the aisle. She stands up with her husband. You know, I'm leading them in vows. You know, do you take her so-and-so? Okay, so imagine if, if the bride says to her new husband, this groom, I promise to put you first before all my other boyfriends the wedding would come to a screeching halt, wouldn't it? Everyone, what? Now, not maybe if it was happening in California. People there would just be like, oh, it's like an alternative lifestyle. But outside of Sodom and Gomorrah, people would be more concerned about that. Like other boyfriends, you know, the groom would be like, wait, what other boyfriends? Like, no, 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 don't worry. I'll put you before my other boyfriends. You'll be my my first guy. That would be unacceptable to everyone, wouldn't it? And, And so it's not that we can have other gods in our life as long as they're behind God or after God. Any other god is spiritual adultery. And adultery in marriage is one of the most devastating sins that can happen in a marriage. It causes so much pain. But as bad as it is, it doesn't compare to spiritual adultery because our covenant with God is an even higher covenant and more serious. As Christians, this husband-wife metaphor still exists between Jesus, who's compared to a groom, and the church, which is uh, compared to a bride in Scripture. So as his people, as his church, we must remain faithful to him. Yet too often Christians will allow false gods into their lives. Hence, I'm preaching a sermon about it now. I think I kind of messed up with this being the grand opening and you know the ninth birthday celebration. We got lots of guests coming today. I should have preached like a real encouraging, fun, powdered sugar donut sermon today, where everybody would just be like, "I like that guy." But I messed up, you know, because I started the Ten Commandments. And the first commandment is probably the most confrontational and challenging one because it sets the stage for all the rest. So on the positive side, if you came as a guest today and you don't hate me at the end of this sermon, welcome home. This is probably your new church. You know, this is this is the church for you. But this this next part I'm going to go through fairly quick. It could be challenging, and I kind of hope it is. I hope it's challenging. I don't want to offend anyone, but I do try to offend everyone equally. (laughs) So I'm going to talk about ten false gods that people worship. Ten false gods that people worship. My uh, lead team told me that we've been having parking problems, so trying to fix that. We're already working on ways to fix that. But I figured this will clear up some parking spaces. (laughs) here at the, at the Mesa campus. Ten false gods that people worship. The first one would be gods of other religions. Other religions. You know, you'll hear people in the world today say, well, you know, you believe this and they believe that and who are you to say you're right and they're wrong? There are many gods and people will say, and there are many ways to God. Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, they're all just worshiping the same God and in the end, they'll work out at the same place they'll end up at the same place and it'll be okay it doesn't really matter it's no no need to get all all mean about you know who's right and who's wrong but gods of other religions are false gods Allah is a false God Buddha is a false God all the Hindu gods all of the Hindu gods are false gods and all false gods and all their followers are going to end up on an eternal cruise to the lake of fire the Hebrews they uh, the Jewish people, they would teach their kids what in Hebrew is called the Shema, which is a direct quote from Deuteronomy 6.4, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. There is no other God like him. And most of us, we would say, like, okay, yeah, so far this sermon's pretty easy. Let's go. What's the next thing? Okay, here's the next false god people worship. Government. It looks different for different people depending on their political persuasion, but government can be a God. For liberals, they worship big daddy government who will provide for all their needs according to his riches and stimulus checks. And their attitude is, you know, government is here to take care of me. Government is here to protect me. Government is here to bless me. And if government tells me to jump, my only question is, how high? Thank you, sir, may I have another? Then it looks different for conservatives. For conservatives in the modern era, we tend to worship charismatic political leaders. And we tell ourselves any day now, they're going to part the clouds, they're going to ride in on a white horse, and they're going to save us from evil. You know, there's Christians, they don't ever read the Bible, but they got a pocket constitution everywhere they go. I'm committing career suicide up here right now. But again, it's true. God established government to be a blessing to us, but government makes a poor God. The third thing is there are counterfeit gods. People worship the false God counterfeit. And what I mean by this is people will use the same terminology that we use from the Bible, but be talking about a very different God. The first version I think of is there are people they identify as Christians, but they don't worship the God of the Bible. They worship the Burger King God. If you grew up in the 80s and 90s, you remember Burger King's jingle, you can have it your way. That was revolutionary at the time. You could tell them, hold the pickles, hold the lettuce, because they said special orders don't upset us. <laughs> All we ask is that you let us have it your way, serve it your way. And so people would show up, you know, like, I want this, I want this. They could customize their burger, and that's the way a lot of people, they, they, they do their faith. They, they have a faith in God, but it's like a customized God. Wow. I'll have one God, please. Hold the judgment hold the sin, talk, hold your sexual ethic, hold all the hell stuff. I'll take extra grace and extra love. Thank you very much. Would you like fries with that? Yes. It's the Burger King God. In Mark 7, Jesus said, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce. For they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. For you ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. He was talking to Jews and Pharisees who they added tradition to God's law and, and who God revealed himself to be in the Old Testament. But this would still apply to Christians today who they, they create their own tradition. They, they substitute their own opinions for God's law. They, they substitute their preferences for God's statutes and they create this false God. It's a farce. Another version of this is there are some false religions that have a counterfeit version of Christianity. And they'll use the same words, a lot of the same names, but be talking about an entirely different God. Like in 2 Corinthians 11, it says this, You happily put up with whatever anyone tells you, even if they preach, look, a different Jesus than the one we preach. They're using the name Jesus... But it's a different Jesus, and it comes from a different kind of spirit than the one you received or a different kind of gospel than the one you believed. You know, this reminds me of the people that will come and they'll knock on your door and they'll say, hi, we're from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They use the name Jesus Christ, but it's a different Jesus. If you know anything about the Book of Mormon, it says, you know, right there for sale on Amazon, the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ. It's another good news. And it came from another kind of spirit. We received the Bible through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Book of Mormon came through a demonic spirit. You know, Joseph Smith says that he received the Book of Mormon when an angel named Moroni appeared to him in the woods and gave him This other gospel. Keep that in mind when you read Galatians chapter 1 where it says this. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. Let God's curse fall on anyone including us or even an angel from heaven who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we preach to you. I say again what we have said before. If anyone preaches any other good news than the one you welcomed, let that person be cursed. See, and here's the thing. I've learned this over the years. You know, I try to be gentle about this as much as I can be. There's a lot of people I know who are Mormons who are really great, and I love them as people. And I'm not trying to be offensive to them, but it's more important to be truthful. And there are are always people at church, when we talk about this, they'll get upset. They'll get upset. Like, I don't like when you talk bad about other religions. So you're saying you don't like when I talk bad about false demon gods that lead people to hell. And it's interesting, after that Galatians 1 passage, the very next verse says this. Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. It's funny that that came next. Okay, so there's counterfeit gods. Counterfeit gods are false gods. Another false god that worship is growing in popularity today, number four, is the environment. People are worshiping the environment like a god. Instead of worshiping Father God, they worship Mother Earth. Instead of building God's kingdom, they work to build a green kingdom. Instead of fighting against sin, they fight against pollution. Instead of serving, they're passionate about recycling. And the environment is a good thing. Uh, you know, the nature is beautiful. God created the world around us, and it reveals His majesty. But. The environment is not more important than people and it makes a bad God. It's a false God. Another false God uh, would be kids, your children. This this is about to get real. Uh, See, because God had to tell ancient Israel, I don't want you to worship, worship false gods that you made out of stone and wood with your own hands. But today, a lot of Christians, they'll worship these little cute gods that they made with their own bodies. And they'll elevate them Above the place of God in their lives, and it it looks different for different people at different times, but the Holy Spirit will show you if this is relevant to you, but it, you know I see people they, they just they think constantly about their kids, they rarely think about God, they love and adore their kids more than they love and adore God, they elevate the wants and needs of their children above the commands and the priorities that God has established. It's the person, they can't go to church on Sunday because they're already going to a tournament for their kids. They can't give to build the kingdom of God because they gotta pay for dance class and football pads. The priorities are out of whack. And you're like, oh, I don't know. Can you really love your kids too much? Let me prove this to you. Because we know what the Bible says, but then how many times have I seen where all of a sudden someone says, well, now that my kid's gay, is it really that bad? Those kids have become gods. And kids are a blessing from God, but they make really bad gods. Oh, yeah. And six, another false god would be power. Power. People want to be in control. And there are some people who will do anything to get power and keep it. Uh, people who will stab each other in the back to climb the corporate ladder and the power hierarchy. The reason that power is so appealing, it, be, it can become like a false god, is because it gives us a sense of Control. You know, I don't have to fear what might happen if I have power and I can control the outcome. Another false god, seven, would be sexuality. Sexuality, and, and you can see and you understand why it can be so appealing. And Worship of demonic gods usually involved sexual sin. Like in ancient times, around the time of the Apostle John and Timothy and Ephesus leading the church, building the church of Jesus Christ, there was this temple called the Temple of Artemis. It's one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Artemis was a goddess, a goddess of fertility. And at her temple, this, one of the most prominent uh, buildings in ancient world, they had temple prostitutes. Part of the worship of these demonic gods involved sexual sin. And we can see why that would be pleasing to Satan but displeasing to God. And, and there's been different types of gods and goddesses like this throughout history, Aphrodite, Baal, Astra. They would go by different names and demons don't mind rebranding themselves. They're more than happy to rebrand themselves to different cultures. And I think many of the same demons have gone by different names over the years. And today the worship of the demonic gods of sexuality, it's still in full swing. Today in America, Its denominations are L, G, B, T, and Q. Planned Parenthood is its temple where children are sacrificed to the false gods of sexuality. Sex can be a good thing from God, but it is a bad God. It's a false God. Also eight, money. Money is a false god that's easy to worship because money also gives you a sense of control of your life. Money can be a type of god because if you have it, you can provide for your needs. If you have money, you can put a roof over your head and have shelter. If you have money, you can buy food and satisfy your hunger. If you have money, you can pay a doctor and, and get healing to some extent. So money can quickly become like a god. God. And that's why Jesus said this in Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus is the one who compared and contrasted them. You cannot serve both God and money. Of all the things he could have said, he said money in this passage where he was telling people not to worry about their needs but to trust God. The thing about money is the more you get, the more you want, and the more you have, the less satisfied you are. If you don't have it, you dream about getting it. Once you get it, you fear losing it. God actually instituted a practice to help us avoid the love of money, and it's something that we'll often call tithing. And, you know, when we talk about giving and tithing in church, it's not just so, like, we can keep the lights on or have... You know, fun things to enjoy, but tithing is a spiritual discipline that the Lord established to help us keep money from rising up to Godhood status in our hearts. Every time I get a paycheck and put God first with the first 10%, it's, it's enough that it realigns my heart and it reminds my soul that God is number one. This money is not God. It's a gift from God, and I'm going to use it to honor God by putting him first. Number nine would be success. I think of how people in American culture especially can be so driven to achieve, and on one hand that's a good thing, but the pursuit of accomplishments and success and accolades, that can become a type of false god where people who are just so desperate to prove themselves and achieve and be viewed as great and respectable, this pursuit of success can become a false god. It's the guy who's more concerned with getting promotions and awards at work while his kids are suffering at home and you know they just want dad to come home. This person often cares more about the approval of others than the approval of God. And then lastly, probably the one that we've all struggled with the most would be self. At the end of the day, I am the most tempting false god, the one who I want to worship, The one who I want to honor is me. And this has been true for all of us probably at one time or another. This is really where the sin root started with Lucifer in heaven who wanted to be like God. And in the garden of uh, Eden, the serpent said to Eve, if you eat this fruit, you will become like God. Now, most of us were not egotistical enough to walk into a room and be like, I am like God. I am just as good, if not even better, than God. Most of us are too smart for that. We we fear getting struck with like a lightning bolt. We're not going to say it out loud, but we'll live it with our actions. I'm going to elevate my preferences above God's standards. I'm going to put my own needs ahead of God's commands. People say It's really easy to bow down and worship at the altar of yourself in the mirror. I make a bad God, though, and so do you. Now, here's why this is tricky. We could just go through lists of all the things that we're tempted to make gods, and we'll all feel really convicted by the end of it. But it's tricky because a lot of the things we're talking about here can be good things. And and they can be good gifts from God. Like, it's good to love the beauty of nature. It's good to love our country. It's good to love your kids. Sex and marriage is good. Money can be a very helpful, good thing. Success can be a good thing and a blessing. It's even, in many ways, appropriate to love yourself because you're made in the image of God. God made you exactly the way you are and says you're fearfully and wonderfully made. The problem is when we love those things in the wrong order. Uh, One of the church fathers, he lived around 400 AD, named Augustine. He basically said, to paraphrase, virtue is rightly ordered love. Virtue means like moral goodness is rightly ordered love. In other words it's okay to love your spouse and your kids and your favorite sports team and your car as long as you love those things in the right order. If you love them in the wrong order, now you've got a false god. In fact, this quote I think was interesting. Uh, Augustine wrote this. When the miser prefers his gold to justice, it's through no fault of the gold but of the man. And so with every created thing. For though it be good, it may be loved with an evil as well as with a good love. It is loved rightly when it is loved ordinately, evilly when inordinately. So you can love your kids rightly when you love them in the right order. And you can love them with an evil love if you love them in the wrong order. That's what he's saying there. So loving God first, having no other gods before him, means that your love for God will shape every other part of your life. Let me show you a picture of how most people tend to live their lives with themselves in the center. Look at this picture, okay? So most people, they live their life like this. I am the center of my universe. And y'all are all just supporting characters in my play. And most people tend to think this way. The world revolves around me, and you're all just kind of like supporting actors. Now, Now what happens is that for a lot of us, we're on a pursuit to figure out which God we want to serve and, and even there are people Going to churches Even there, there are Christians And what they think is Hey as long as I get the right God In the God bubble Then I'll be good if I, if I get the right God If I get this Jesus You're talking about Pastor Ryan Then I won't have to worry about Going to hell And I won't have to feel guilty For the things I've done And I'll be good I just got to get the right God And then I can live a good Full Happy Satisfying life And do what I want the rest of the time and what happens is they isolate God from the other parts of their lives and that's why it becomes so easy for all these other false gods to creep up because it's like well yeah I believe in the God of the Bible but I don't really want him telling me what to do with my money I don't want him telling me what to do with my money I don't want him talking to me about my sex life I don't want him telling me what kind of friends I should hang out with or what kind of causes I should support or who I should vote for. God, just stay in your God bubble. Stop messing with me. But when you understand the first commandment, which is so foundational to our faith, then the priorities shift, the order of these things shift. And instead of me being in the middle of my life, God is in the middle of my life. God is first, God is foremost. And every part of my life revolves around him. And so what happens then is every part of my life becomes shaped by my faith in God and the word of God. So, you know, what, what does a healthy sex life look like? You're not going to learn in public school. You're not going to learn from the media. You you will, though, however, go to God's word and you'll say, okay, based on God's word, where do I get my standards of Healthy human sexuality. Okay, God created it to be between a husband and one and a wife in a committed marriage relationship and and that's it. And in that context, it's very good and outside of that context it's very bad. And so when God says don't do all these other freaky things that you want to do, he's really saying don't hurt yourself. And when it comes to your friends, you're gonna be like, man, Well, I, I kinda of like you know, Bubba and Tito and we like, we like to have a good time and party and, and we get into all kinds of trouble. But lately I've been feeling like, man, I need to reevaluate my friends and who I spend all my time with because I think they're af- affecting me more than I affect them. Or the causes you support, you're gonna to start to care more about God's cause than man's cause. And you start to realize reaching lost people is more important than saving baby seals, uh, for example. <laughs> Or another one that's always controversial every couple years is when you put God number one, it's going to drive your politics and the way that you vote. A lot of Christians are like, okay, let's keep God out of all this because I've got my own policies I'd like to implement. And they're willing to put God in the back seat. So you can see how easy it is for idolatry to creep into our lives and for us to make ourselves the God of our lives. And so we know God says, I am your God. No other gods before me. Keep those other gods out of my life. They can be good things, but they're not God. So what do we do if we've been worshiping other gods? Okay, so that's the question. All this to say, what do you do if you realize you've been worshiping other gods? I'm not here just to beat you up and make you feel bad about it. I want to help you fix it and get back on track. Well, you have choices. Option one, you could ignore God's commandment. It's always an option. You could ignore God's commands and do whatever you want. God gave you free will. He gave you a choice because he wants us to choose to love and worship him freely. That's why he didn't program us all to be robots, just do what we were programmed to do. That's not really how you you can't have a real relationship with a robot. So God gives us a choice. You can ignore these challenging statements. You could just chalk it up to that guy's so mean. He's so close minded with his view of the world. Some of you might be squirming right now. Maybe you wish you could leave, but you sat in the middle of the aisle and so you know it would be really awkward. (laughs) Especially right after I insulted your false God. But maybe God is convicting you today. He's convincing you that, hey, there's something wrong here. There's something wrong in your life. When you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you can either ignore it or respond to it. But a lot of people, they do ignore it. And We should understand that that is serious. In Jeremiah 35, God says this, "'Time after time I sent you prophets who told you, "'turn from your wicked ways and start doing things right. "'Stop worshiping other gods "'so that you might live in peace "'here in the land I have given to you and your ancestors. "'But you would not listen to me or obey me. "'You've refused to listen to me.'" Therefore, this is what the Lord God of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Because you refuse to listen or answer when I call, I will send upon Judah and Jerusalem all the disasters I have threatened. So what God did with his people was they persisted in worshiping idols and false gods. God warned them and called them to return and change again and again. They ignored him like we often ignored him. And so God, because he is a loving father, he said, I'm going to have to discipline you, hopefully to get you back on track. But this disaster that's coming upon you, it's really disaster you've brought upon yourself. And for us even today, when we ignore God's commandments as it pertains to particular parts of our life, we can bring disaster into our life. Even though God's still good and he loves us, if you worship your kids, your family will become a disaster. If you worship money, your finances will be a disaster. If you worship sex, your relationships will be a disaster. And all this disaster is what God is trying to protect us from by giving us his law and saying, don't have any other gods before me. He's saying, don't hurt yourself by worshiping these other gods. When you ignore his warning, you have no one to blame but yourself. I'm compassionate to people who are suffering, but I can't tell you how many times someone's like, Pastor Ryan, why did God let this happen to me? You made this happen to you. How often? I mean, not not every time, but a lot of times we bring suffering and disaster on ourselves because we ignore God and we have to suffer the consequences of sin, but it doesn't have to be that way because there's another option. If you realize you've been worshiping false gods, option two is repent and return, repent and return. There's been times, you know, I've been driving in the car and uh, I get kind of lost, but my pride gets the better of me. And my wife, Amy, will be like, hey, are you sure you know where you're going? Are you sure it's this way? And I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure. And I I know I'm not sure. Like, I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'm lost is what I'm sure about, but I don't want her to know that. And uh, and rather than just humble myself and turn around and be like, I missed my turn, or persist in going the wrong way, It doesn't have to be that way. In Joel chapter 2, it says this. That is why the Lord says, turn to me now while there is time. You only have so much time to choose to turn to God. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate Slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love, he is eager to relent and not punish. Who knows? Perhaps he will give you a reprieve, sending you a blessing instead of this curse. Doesn't this just capture the situation so perfectly? Repent, return to God while there's still time. And then it talks about how we should come to God with weeping, with mourning, and with fasting. What does that mean? It means that when you realize that you've been committing spiritual adultery, you should care. You should care. You know, adultery in marriage is so devastating because it violates this promise that's been made. And it hurts the spouse who got cheated on. Imagine how it hurts God when we cheat on him spiritually. And so repentance, it it carries this idea of like, I actually feel remorse for what I've done. It doesn't mean that you beat yourself up for eternity, but it's appropriate to feel remorse and return to God. And then he reminds us that he is compassionate and merciful and slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. That's how gracious our Lord is. What about you? Have you had divided loyalties? This same sentiment is repeated in the New Testament to Christian believers in Jesus in James chapter four, verse eight, where it says, come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. So there's this process of repenting, of remorse, just like we read about in Joel, but then again, God reminds us of his graciousness and mercy. He says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. Look at that. Humble yourselves, like kneel, bow, submit yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. And that word Lord in Greek is kyrios. Kyrios, it means Lord. It means master, it means commander, the one who's in authority, the ruler of our lives, the one who gives orders. Jesus is Lord, and when you humble yourself before him as Lord, he will lift you up in honor. And that's exactly what happens. We sin, we fall short of God's standard, our sin makes us unclean, we try to worship all these other false gods in order to try to fix our lives and, you know, ha- have some kind of hope and not feel guilty and, and have some way of thinking things are going to work out and we'll be blessed if we do this and we'll be happy if we do this. But all of these things just serve to highlight how poor all these other gods are at meeting our needs and loving us. We realize that we humble ourselves before the Lord. We, we say, man, I've been doing it wrong, I've been Worshiping false gods. I've been putting myself above God. I've been putting my opinions above God's opinions. And and I need to humble myself and recognize God is God. I am not. There's no one like God. I am am here to serve him and worship him. He is God and I need to trust him. And so you you have like this realization. I'm humbling myself before the Lord. And it happens when we confess. I, I know I've sinned. I've fallen short of his standard. And when you do this, and we put our faith in Jesus as Lord, he lifts us up with honor. He adopts us into his family. He cleanses us from our sins. He clothes us in righteousness. He transfers the inheritance of Jesus to our account and loves us because of who we are in Christ Jesus. In Romans 10, 9, it says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And in Romans 5, 1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. To be justified by faith, this is a legal term, justification. Justified. It'd be like in the courtroom of heaven you know, the devil gets up and starts reading all your sins out to God, the judge. He's like, He's guilty of this, he's guilty of this, he's guilty of this, and he's right. But then Jesus stands up and says, Actually, I paid the price for that sin. I took that sin upon myself. I paid the price for that. And then the judge goes, Not guilty. That's what it means to be justified by faith. And it happens when you acknowledge Jesus as Lord. There's a lot of Christians today, a lot of pastors, a lot of churches. They'll talk all day about accepting Jesus as your savior. Let Jesus save you. Let Jesus save you. Just let God love you. He wants to love you. You will not experience the love of God until you receive the son of God. And Jesus will not save your soul until you let him be Lord of your life that's when you experience salvation and scripture makes it really clear and that's an offer that he makes available to all of us so let's close with that let's bow our heads for us as Christians you know this is an opportunity uh, if the Holy Spirit has convicted us of something out of alignment to repent of that make that right confess that to God receive forgiveness in Jesus and the unfailing love of God his mercy and grace it will fill you up you'll experience that today again in a new way But then there are also probably people here in Mesa, maybe at South Mountain, maybe online, maybe at Fountain Hills. And you'd say, I've never accepted Jesus as Lord of my life. And I want to be saved. And so I need to let Jesus be Lord. I need to submit my life to him. And so I want to lead you in a prayer. And I just want to help you to express what's in your heart. If you need to accept Jesus as Lord, then pray this with me. And if you mean it, God will hear it. And it'll have a huge impact on your life and your eternity. Just pray with me and just say, God, I know I've sinned against you. I've broken your commandments and I've fallen short of your glorious standard. I need a savior and I ask you to forgive me. I believe that Jesus is the son of God. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. I believe he rose again through faith in Jesus. I am forgiven and I receive eternal life. And today, I accept you, Jesus, as my Lord, my King, and my Savior. And I thank you that you've also called me your friend. I ask that you would lead me from this day forward. And I thank you for your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, let's stand to our feet together. We're gonna take time to praise God for what he's done. I wanna encourage you, don't don't start rushing out of here before we respond to this message. And if you just pray to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior right now, that's the most important decision you've ever made, so we need to celebrate that. And I think there's something that's really powerful that happens when we respond physically to what just happened inwardly and spiritually. It helps to solidify it for us. So if you just prayed to accept Jesus, I'm gonna count to three. And I'm going to invite you just to shoot your hand up. And we're not going to embarrass you, but we want to celebrate with you. So get ready to respond. You just accepted Jesus. One, welcome to God's family. Two, he loves you so much. Three, shoot your hand up. If that's you, awesome. Thank you. Just raise it up. Come on. Be proud of it. God is good. That's great, man. Awesome, awesome. Thank you. Church, let's give God praise today. Come on. He's good. He deserves it. Let's worship him. Lift him up.